Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Just when you thought US politics couldn't get any more interesting, Trump's bout with COVID has completely changed the symbolism of the campaign. Is it good to appear strong or does it make him appear reckless? We'll be looking at the optics of Trump's illness and its impact on the polls, how those polls are going, what it means for the election. But we'll also be talking about COVID and Trump and his actual treatment plan. What does that tell us about what doctors are thinking about how you treat patients with COVID? Is it really just a long wait for a vaccine or there are actually things that we can do in the meantime? Uh, That's certainly something worth talking about since vaccines don't look like they're coming anytime soon, according to Josh Frydenberg. So, uh, and we'll be talking about that federal budget as well, uh, where we're banking on a vaccine by the end of 2021 and in the meantime we'll all go bankrupt. Sorry, uh, we'll all spend a lot of money on uh, supposedly boosting the spending power in the economy. Infrastructure stuff, tax cuts. Uh, We're all Keynesians now, Chris. That was my co-host, Chris Berg, interrupting. Welcome, Chris Berg from RMIT University. Thank you, Scott. That's Chris's way of saying, get on with it, Scott. (laughs) Look, it would be rude to suggest that. Yes. Go on. Well, we have done this, you know, for 83 shows now. I think you can probably interrupt (laughs) once or twice in my introduction. Uh, I'm also very pleased to welcome, uh, fresh from a deep, deep analysis of the federal budget that he conducted last night with Gideon Rosner and other panellists from the Institute of Public Affairs, none other than our Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. G'day, Scott. G'day, Evan. Great to have you on the show, mate. Uh, yes, we'll be, we'll be talking more about that budget. But as I mentioned, I did want to start with Trump. Uh, I thought this week we might be talking about the wash-up of the debate, but a lot's happened since then, Chris. No, but it may actually be worth talking about the debate in a moment. But the headline story is, of course, on early Friday morning, um, Washington time, it was revealed that Donald Trump had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, he apparently needed some supplemental oxygen while he was in the White House. Um, on Saturday, he was transferred to the Walter Reed Medical Center, um, uh, where he may or may not have received additional oxygen, but he certainly has received some um, a, a cocktail of drugs, in fact, multiple cocktails of drugs, which I think we'll go into in a moment. Um, and in the last 24 hours, he's been discharged or he has discharged himself from the um, from Walter Reed and has returned to the White House um, in scenes that uh, he's obviously trying to project a message of triumph, um, having uh, having defeated the virus. I think defeated is one of the words that he's been using. Um, I thought let's start on the politics. Um, Evan, what's your hot take? How does this rather incredible set of events, rather incredible three days in U.S. politics? How does it affect the presidential election? Well, they say there's always an October surprise, and uh, they definitely got one. <laughs> Usually uh, it's a in... planned surprise. I don't know this is a planned surprise. Yeah, true. And they definitely got one in uh, Trump contracting the coronavirus. Now, I do think on the politics, people will probably view uh, the president as a, perhaps a bit reckless, and it does play into the Democrats' line about the president not taking the virus all too seriously. And, you know, a lot of people can then jump on that and say, well, it's Trump's fault that he got it. He's not wearing a mask often enough. He's not social distancing uh, with his team. So it does play into into that logic. I think the recovery is a bit different, though, 
I think the fact that he was able to recover the virus in, uh, from the virus in about three days um, and, 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 you know, able to portray that strength um, does more to break the sort of psychological stranglehold the virus has had on, on, on people in the US than any, you know, mask or, or vaccine would. And I'll contrast this with the UK because, as you remember, it seems like a lifetime ago now, but Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister there, contracted coronavirus, and that, you know, he was unfortunately on a ventilator for a while. And I think that uh, played into the national psyche a bit more. And, you know, there's lots of commentators now saying that he hasn't really recovered his mojo since that event. Um, so I think the fact that the president can, at least he might look sick, but at least portray strength and portray normality, I think will do a lot for the psyche of the nation. But at the first, at the first instance, um, uh, so so I, I think thinking about the secondary consequences is interesting. But at the first instance, this is exactly what Donald Trump doesn't want, which is to put coronavirus once again back at the centre of political debate. We we're on the show just a couple of weeks ago talking about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the US Supreme Court and how that may be seen as a way to discuss something in the Republicans' home territory. It's it's not that you have to even be pro-Donald Trump, but if you're pro-Republican or you, you share the Republican policy agenda, you're excited about the possibility of putting someone on the Supreme Court. That's a new thing to talk about that isn't the coronavirus, which, which Trump clearly for the last 12, not 12 months, the last six months, has seen as um, not a message of uh, political strength, if anything else. So at the first instance, this is not good for Trump, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it's a bit so-so. I think it would have been a bit worse if he had have been in hospital for longer. People would have been worried about his leadership and that might have um, stopped a few people from going out to vote. But I think the dynamics are a lot more different in the UK, sorry, in the US rather, because people are they don't they don't have compulsory voting people actually have to be motivated to go out to vote now do i think that um uh, trump uh, contracting the coronavirus is going to stop republican voters from going out i i, I just don't see anyone him losing votes uh from this in reality now the uh, the what is the big issue of the day is obviously very fluid in the US. We don't know what's going to be the news story tomorrow. But I think as it moves back towards that, that Supreme Court nomination, it'll get more back on the, the Republicans' home turf, which is that the court appointments. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that will, that will be a strength for him uh, if he can display leadership now, if he can keep motivating his base. I understand he's been calling around and doing a lot of interviews from isolation. He's been tweeting still. So people still see that sense of normality. Yeah, I um, I got a couple of things. I'm, I, I'm not sure we will get back to other issues like the Supreme Court nom nomination. And of course, we can't rule out that, that Trump will actually, his health will actually decline, in which case that's the end of it. So, the, but well, still, yeah, yeah, just, but, just on that. No. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of um, enthusiasm that he's returned to uh, the White House. Now, obviously, I'm not his doctor, but everything we know about this virus is that it is worse in the second week, and we're about four days in or five days in or something like that. 
and it can be quite um, erratic, er, quite erratic. Uh, you know, sudden, yeah. sudden bursts of feeling terrible followed by not feeling quite so bad and, and, and just more or less at random. That's They've been the sort of stories that I've heard uh, and maybe... Uh, maybe the guy should have stayed in hospital, but um, but still on the symbolism. Let's let's say right. Let's say he's right, and that's it. And it's this strong man uh, persona. Um, Andrew Bushnell, who spent time in uh, Latin America, says that in many ways uh, Trump's almost in the you know the the Latin American strongman style of, of leadership. And I think there's a lot to that. But to me, it's just all these things play to the demographics. Now, if you're in the demographic that wants that strong leadership. And also, it's all about COVID. It's all about your attitudes to COVID. I'd love to, love to see it broken down this way. If you believe that we can't shut down the world economy for two years because of COVID and that at some point one must get on with one's lives and that a single-minded uh, focus on COVID means that, in fact, you're probably making other health outcomes worse and all the things that you've talked about on the show, then I've got to say, that, that was almost an inspirational moment just to say you can't for Trump to get up and say, look, you can't let it dominate your life. Um, because, you know, who else has said that in, in the West? Um, uh, you know, you've got, you know, certainly uh, in some other countries, but in the mainstream Western countries. So in one sense, it's inspirational. But then we, we know that the bulk of the world's, uh, the, the, the populations in the Western world fall more into the extremely fearful camp um, I don't want to call them bedwetters, but I think you know what I mean. It's um, extremely risk averse. Uh, we should have locked down uh, for months and months and months. Maybe the Americans are saying we should have done what Victoria did. You know, they probably are. Um, and for that demographic, of course, this is this is Trump's doing exactly the wrong thing. And I and I've seen some polls that uh, the biggest change in uh, in Trump's uh, demographic support has been a loss of support amongst older people. So I think it maps to if you're in the workforce, if you want to get on with your lives, you probably think what Trump did is wonderful and excellent and good on him. Um, but if you're in the bedwetter camp, you probably think it's terrible. So, And election day is going to be all about how those demographics line up for me. I, I, can, I can imagine a scenario over the next couple of weeks where Trump lays out that argument, where he lays out the, you know, my experience has shown us that we have to we, we we have to learn to live with this virus in some way, not completely ignore it, but to learn to live with it. But my problem is that Trump, I think, has lost the ability to sell any message at all. He's lost the ability to seriously communicate and make an argument. Now, to to spell to spell this point out, think about twenty sixteen where he did sell a really clear message. He sold, a, he sold a coherent story about how the Republican Party had abandoned the working class, particularly the white working class, to the significant detriment of the economy. He talked about the harm of the opioid crisis in the United States and all that sort of thing. So much so that it affected, at least on the Republican side, basically a complete political realignment. And we got this huge ideological, philosophical um, uh, reinvention of what it meant to be a Republican. Now, to step back before his diagnosis of COVID with, with his debate, the most striking thing about the debate was that he couldn't get out of his own head. He could not sell a story. He could not 
tell he could not tell a story for the life of him. He could not. He made he made, he made he himself not, the story. He 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 he, would, he wouldn't even tell stories, right? He would just refer to stories as if we're all watching Fox as closely as he is. I think that in the the modern Trump, the Trump that we have now is someone who's unable to tell that story that you that I think I would like him to tell, which is that you know that there has to be a middle way between nothing, you know, absolutely no response to COVID and the Victorian lockdown model. Now he's he's in a position to tell that. I just don't think he can tell it anymore um, if if his performance over the last couple of years is to be believed. Yeah, no, it, it is an interesting point. And, and I guess the, the politics of that are, you know, very interesting. Um, uh, he told Ruli Giuliani that, you know, if he, if he handled it any other way, he just would have created more panic and more fear in the American people. So it, 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 I mean, it's yet to be seen whether sort of instilling that strength and, 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 you know, as Scott said, and what Trump said, not letting the, the virus take over you and control you. Um, whether people buy into media panic over coronavirus or whether uh, people try to get on with their lives as normal and whether that's a motivating factor for people. Now, what motivated people in the 2016 election, I still think will motivate people to vote for Donald Trump in this election. Um, I, I, I think, you know, prior to the coronavirus, all things were looking really good for Trump. The economy was really good. Unemployment was at all-time lows. Um, things were going really well. You started to see manufacturing jobs arrive and that he was getting the border wall done. So he had ticked off a lot of the big things he said he would do. Um, and I think people that were focused on those issues are still going to be focused on those issues. Um, and I, I, I really don't see where... Uh, rep- Republican voters that voted for Trump in 2016 might feel another way now, coronavirus or not. But we are being badly served here, right? So so we, as in representatives of people who are trying to make the argument that the there has to be more policy goals than just immediately eliminating this virus, we are being badly served by um, by Trump's inability to make this argument coherently and credibly. And this argument would be much stronger coming from the president if he were if he hadn't obviously been reckless and he hadn't obviously um, uh, been trying to he just hasn't been telling a coherent story. And if he's been if he was telling a coherent story, if he was telling that coherent story credibly, then we would be in a position to say, and he would be in a position to say that um, uh, you know we can't, we have to learn to live with this. We've got to get on. We've got to um, open up the economy in a safe and careful way. But I, I, I just don't think that he's done that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, and it's all well and good to agree with his his instinct, but but it, he has to. If you're a political leader, you have to be able to sell that oh, story oh, too. And, and, and he hasn't. And you actually put the work in. I mean, this this this. Um, I think that's exactly right because there's a, there's a tragedy of, of what he could have done if he was. A diff, if he wasn't Trump, I, I guess, um, if he had the instincts of Trump, but maybe a bit more capacity to to organise government uh, with a long longer term view, because I mean this 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 whole thing, I mean he's clearly sees that there's a political dimension to his opponents wanting to make Corona the main thing. 
I'm not saying the Democrats invented the coronavirus. It's a real thing. But clearly it served their purpose to interrupt Trump's narrative and say there is nothing more important than this. And so the, the semiotics of Biden wearing a mask, even when there's no one within 50 metres of him at you know, for his three-minute press conference before he goes back to bed. You know, that's that's what they... Yeah, he's it, following Victoria's rules. That, that's right. It's just a reminder <laughs> of, of how, what they want the narrative to be. But here's the thing. So his instincts are right, um, but he could have, you know, broken this idea that the experts all say we should lock down and, and the experts say this. And, and, you know, he could have drawn on some of the world's best to actually frame narratives. But instead, the very, very disappointing line in the... Um, it has been seized on, but when he when he said, "I've learnt a lot about the coronavirus," you know, six months into um, uh, this this whole wretched experience, it, it sort of it, it underlines the point that well, he's, he's had opportunities to learn more about it and to mobilise the support and to um, I guess you know fight back against the, the Neil Ferguson. Uh, lockdown kind of view. You could have reached out to um, Sunitra Gupta and, you know, done all kinds of things. Um, but that opportunity has been lost and, yeah, and maybe well, lost forever. I just saw that the Facebook and, and Twitter have both um, uh, censored Trump's comment that uh, COVID was similar to the flu. Now it's, um, you know, it's one thing to censor someone for, uh, you know, comments about, you know, opinions about democracy and things like that, but it's literally what his personal experience was. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think. Um, but I think. In, yeah, I think. In I think. I think in, though he's re referring not to the disease itself, but to the uh, the incidence in the population. You know, it's the number of people impacted. Um, and so, and sorry to interrupt, but I mean, this is a classic example of something that's been a meme for months that Trump could have nailed. He could have actually stood yeah. up, stood up there with a chart and said, you know, this this is you know percentage of population impacted by a seasonal flu in an average year, and this is percentage of population impacted by COVID nineteen in an average year, and away. And it'll be interesting to judge whether this changes people's attitudes towards COVID, not necessarily towards Trump as we're talking about, but towards the virus itself, because people might look at what's happened and think, hey, someone who's over seventy. Um, and let's face it, you know, a touch overweight, if they can get the virus and be fine, people are going to be a lot more confident about how they undertake their everyday lives than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, so so just before we move off, um, uh, how would you rate... So so w where do you think the election stands right now, Evan? Um, I still think it's going to be very close. I, I, I think it could go the way... Um, uh, probably a soft, uh, just Biden victory, but uh, it could very much be be Trump by a few states. Um, it it just depends on how the last couple of weeks goes um, uh, in terms of the electoral process. Um, there's bound to be more surprises, uh, but uh, I, think it, I think it's going to be very close regardless. Where, where do you stand, Scott? We are less than a month away from the U.S. presidential election. More, more let's, bearish. Um, let's say things we regret. More, <laughs> more bearish. I'm afraid. 
Um, uh, I must admit, you know, on this show, I, I ventilated uh, uh, Rick Wilson and the Lincoln Projects, the Trump-hating uh, Republicans, uh, the never-Trumpers, uh, a couple of months ago. And, you know, I thought I did that in the interests of fairness and showing the opposing view. But the closer the prospect of a Biden victory becomes, <laughs> the, the more unhappy I am about it, I must say, and, and, uh, and potentially a thumping victory too that could deliver um, uh, the Senate um, and then, you know, open up the prospects of admitting uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as, as states, which is like almost like a gerrymander. Um, uh, this is very, very concerning uh, to me. I think I don't think it was COVID. I think uh, the debate probably was a break point. Um, you know, Biden, I think, was within within that attack, attackable range of, you know, 6 to 7% in front of the polls. You could argue shy Tories and so on. But, but Chris, those numbers have actually just got worse, haven't they? They have. They have. I was just looking at it today. The numbers are just extraordinary. We're looking at 538, which is um, a very useful polling aggregator website, uh, amongst other things, um, just looking at the net Biden up on um, all the polls that were just released today, right? I'll, I'll just read them quickly. Biden plus 11, Biden plus 12, plus 11, plus 8, plus 7, plus 9, plus 10, plus 15, plus 16, plus 14, plus 7. Look, I can I can imagine a world in which there is a shy Tory effect. I can imagine how polls could be systemically wrong. But given all the evidence that we have and our inability to predict um, uh, poll biases and, and wrong polls ahead of time, I think you'd have to, you'd, you'd be reckless not to assume just a massive Biden blowout at this stage. I, it, the, the betting markets, the polls, they are the only pieces of evidence we actually have about how people are going to vote. And it just looks like a, a, a landslide to Biden at this stage. Uh, it does. So, but that could change. Politics is a funny business. Um, and I dare say we'll talk about it some more on future episodes of, um, <laughs> we of, may touch of looking forward. So the other, the other part of the narrative about Trump going, uh, ultimately going to hospital, which he, I dare say he didn't want to do, um, was uh, the fevered coverage of his treatment plan, um, uh, the uh, and including the, uh, the, the cocktail of drugs he was taking, even, you know, people pouring over the fact that he was taking vitamin D, <laughs> like this was some kind of an issue, given that you can get it over the counter. Same with zinc. Um, it's actually unearthed a bit of a sort of a subterranean debate, or actually one that we've tried to have on this show, about um, how clinicians actually treat COVID-19. You know, we've made the point on this show that uh, all the headline coverage uh, just seems to be about waiting for a vaccine, whereas we know that... Uh, over the six months, doctors have learnt a lot about how to treat uh, COVID-19, how to ameliorate its symptoms. You know, there's still no cure, obviously, but there are drugs out there that can have beneficial impacts on uh, patients' um, health and reduce chances of mortality. And it looks like uh, they sort of threw everything, pretty much everything except, funnily enough, um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, Chris. That's right. Um, so we might talk about it at the moment. But um, so, yeah, Trump has been given a, a just a large suite of medications. Of course, most people in his situation would get a large number of medications. So we shouldn't be shocked by the by the volume. But I think it is interesting that some of the medic medicines he's gotten 
have not been approved for general use. Some of them are only in stage three trials or are under emergency youth or use authorizations, particularly um, while he was still in the White House, they, um, uh, a press release went out that said he was given um, a monoclonal antibody, monoclonal antibody or by a company called Regeneron. Um, now, this is a um, medicine that is currently under trial um, uh, and, and has not been approved by the FDA. Um, I think this is interesting, not because the president got it, but because it continues to demonstrate one of the underlying stories of this crisis, which is the very, very slow approach to um, medical authorizations that so many of the needed treatments have received. And as a couple of people have pointed out, Donald Trump managed to get this, but a lot of people who are sick with COVID have not been able to get access to these medicines. Why the hell not? Why are we living under a regulatory system that would rather people die than experiment with these new drugs? If you are in a absolutely critical stage in your care, why are you unable, why are many people unable to get access to those sorts of drugs at all. There's a lot of talk about right to try policies, right to try, you know, if you, you should be able to try um, experimental medicines if you're in a um, life-threatening situation. Um, this is, uh, I, I think there's a big story here, a big underlying story about how the medical profession, not the medical profession, not doctors per se, but how medical regulators, how medical ethicists, uh, how a lot of the, um, the the public health people that we don't speak about as much on this show have really failed to stand up and rethink some of their assumptions during the pandemic. Evan, um, what's, your, what's your view on this? So were you surprised by the sorts of drugs that he could get access to? Are you, uh, do you, do you share my concern with the, with the medical um, uh, yeah, regulators I, that we have? I, I, I do share your concern and um, Trump, you know, from very on his uh, presidency has been a big supporter of, of the right to try reforms and allowing people to take experimental drugs. So one would think that would play out to the American people and the American people who are suffering with COVID would have access to those sort of drugs. Um, uh, there seems to be, you know, a lot of politics in this, um, particularly with the hydroxychloroquine um, stuff. Um, now, you know, there's lots of debates between different sides on that particular drug, and I'm not going to take a side in that, but um, it very much seems to be, uh, have gotten sort of different sides of the medical community into political debates where there's ultra-partisanship. I don't necessarily think that that is a good thing. Um, and, um, you yeah, know, back to what I was saying, I think it's important that, you know, the his advocacy for right to try translates to uh, the American people and any sort of experimental drugs that are in trials um, that the president has, has access to um, the American people should also have access to. Yeah, and I think, and thank you for pointing out, Evan, that yeah, Trump's been consistent on this. If Trump was someone 
who, you know, been risk averse and always believed that everything had to, you know, that the FDA was doing a good job taking, you know, three, five, seven years to approve the release of drugs, then he would have been a hypocrite for getting um, uh, access to uh, the monoclonal antibodies, the uh, uh, Regeneron or Regeneron uh, that's uh, made... um, uh, and was yeah, he was given compassionate access to that. But he's been on it for a start. I mean, I found a, a six-month-old email uh, in my inbox where I was telling someone back in March how um, when the first studies came through talking about the potential benefits of, um, of zinc sulfate um, uh, just because it, it, it assists the immune system um, and because 40% of Americans are deficient in zinc, um, he, he was very supportive of the FDA push allowing off-label use, these kinds of things. He's been completely consistent and, in fact, we should be doing more of it. And what annoys me is, as I was reading the chatter on social media, uh, those who wanted to call into question, like, like, you know, virtually implying that Trump's doctors were all quacks, and there's whatever treatment it was, it was like, oh yes, but it hasn't been through, you know, double blind peer review and a, you know, F, you know three year study. They even said that about vitamin D. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the ABC <laughs> News, uh, the American ABC website. It literally said, at uh, vitamin D. At this point, studies have not demonstrated that taking a vitamin D supplement can help fend off COVID nineteen related illness. Now, that may well be the case, but I would have thought vitamin D falls into the category of of chicken soup like it's not going to hurt <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but it's just yeah. this insane thing that until um some great authority until the cdc signs it off or the fda or whatever signs it off you can't do it i mean if clinicians had have followed that approach there'd be you know millions more people dead around the world thank god they just get on with it you know they they form their own understanding of, of what's happening in the real world based on uh, real-time published documents shared amongst the medical profession. But we've missed a lot of tricks here as well. And I think one of the things that we should learn to regret is our inability to challenge some of these presumptions. So one of the things that um, uh, a, a number of um, free market economists actually have been talking about, um, like Alex Tabarrok, who you might know, um, writes on Marginal Revolution with Tyler Cohen, has been talking about the virtues of challenge trials for vaccine development and other um, uh, and, and other treatments. So challenge trials are where you um, give people controlled infections of a disease. So you would give someone deliberately a controlled infection of COVID-19 and then see how their body responds under certain conditions, say, you know, if they're trying a new vaccine or so forth. Now, the medical ethics community hates challenge trials and hates it for really predictable reasons. You know, what if what, you, you would pay these people and you're, you're asking people to take money to put their own health at stake. That is so deeply unethical. Now, I think that this is a no-brainer that we should have been doing this from day one, really. Um, obviously, for people who would be likely to survive the disease, um, anyway, obviously for, um, you know, not for the elderly or anything like that. But instead, what we've had to do is this month-long, multi-month-long process of stage one, stage two, stage three trials that can take forever because we wait around. We, so, so the way vaccine development works is we give people a potential vaccine and then we wait for them, hopefully, to come in contact with someone who's got COVID. <laughs> 
we just wait away. But and that's why it takes so long, right? It just it it is an incredibly slow process just because we're gonna wait. And it's really hard to do in environments where there's very low numbers of the disease. Um, and that's why the vaccine is taking this long. We could have fast forwarded this if the medical ethics community had had the gumption and we had the um, courage to challenge them on this to 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 change some of their their sort of default assumptions. We are not in a normal yeah. world. We should yeah, have been where, doing Greg new Hunt, things. Where's Greg Hunt on all of this? All Greg Hunt talks about is a vaccine. What are we well, supposed yeah, to do in the yeah, meantime? That's, that's right. Come on, Greg. What no, are you doing about right. it in the meantime? But you know, so so uh, Australia's in a funny position, right? Though, so, uh, you know, we're not leading the development of these vaccines. We just sit back and and yeah. you know, the Australian government writes contracts to buy imaginary I vaccines. I think there are other things as well. We focus the debate a lot on you know the vaccine and you know these kind of immune immune response drugs as well. But um, one thing that's in fast development that apparently will be available by towards the end of the year is an instant COVID test. Now, that will uh, make possibilities much greater for international travel, for interstate travel. Um, God forbid the borders still closed in Australia. Um, but that will allow people to get on with their lives with somewhat normality uh, than, than, say, an immune response drug will. No, that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, we we this fixation on the vaccine, we're not thinking about a whole range of things that actually um, allow you to live uh, with the virus more effectively and achieve some of the other goals that we talk about on this show. You know, we don't we don't seem to be able to learn from Taiwan, uh, for instance, as we've talked about, uh, and 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 not think about things like because that that is a what you're describing is a technical fix. Uh, Evan, or oh, sorry, it's not a fix, but it's a, an important contribution. But it only works if if governments can then implement it, and 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 get the public's faith in it, and build a system around it. And that's where I think we're deficient. And and while I've got the microphone, Chris, um, uh, I may come to regret this, uh, but I am going to go on one final rant about about the drugs. And this is a personal view, not an IPA view. Um, but again, I just think it's so important this debate over Trump because it's it's highlighted so much about the importance of the immune system, and and this the danger of focusing on vaccines and waiting for governments to save you um, is that people are not taking responsibility for their own health. Um, I think of you know Nassim Taleb, you know, and his whole point that the immune system it's anti fragile. It's actually got to be under load. Um, and I really do worry that this whole approach of, of locking people away, of protecting them from exposure to viruses, um, of saying that don't worry, the state will look after you if you get sick or we're going to stop you getting sick and if you get sick, we'll look after you. Um, we're not doing the things that people need to do to actually be healthy, um, to have a strong immune system response to um, because, of course, uh, there's a lot of evidence that um, your, uh, your response to coronavirus uh, is improved if you're exposed to other similar viruses. If you're blocking people from being exposed to any kind of a virus, you could potentially be making things worse. Um, so, uh, you know, full disclosure, not a medical person, but these, these uh, it just seems that a lot of this stuff is, is common sense. And they talk about, you know, the risk factor for age and Trump's 74 and he's obese, which he is, but he's an active 74. He's, 
his immune system, his, his, his body and brain are, are uh, under load, if you like. This is very different to someone who may be an, uh, obese in ill health and completely sedentary in a nursing home. So you've got to think through all of these things. And I'm just, I just hate this idea that the, the fear of the virus is driving everyone uh, into a, a victim mentality, stripping them of agency, and people aren't taking responsibility for their own health and the things that can do it. The fact that we are locking children away from sunlight, uh, for instance, is, is um, it's almost evil. But um, that's my rant for today, Chris. That's today's rant. That's today's rant. <laughs> Rants with Scott. Let's, let's go back you. to talking about economics and public policy and all those safe, <laughs> safe topics, Chris. What's Josh Frydenberg going to do about it? What a great question. Thank you, Scott. So the um, federal budget was, of course, released yesterday, delayed. Normally it's released much earlier in the year. The headline figures, or at least as I see the headline figures, Commonwealth government spending is now at 34.8% of GDP. That is an enormous figure. Compare it with the peak Commonwealth spending in the middle of the global financial crisis, where under Kevin Rudd, it was just 25.9% of GDP. These are obviously extraordinary times. Um, there are obviously going to be um, much greater calls on the federal budget um, under a pandemic lockdown environment than there would be in normal times. It's even more significant than the GFC. All of that granted though, this is a massive, massive number. Now we might go through some of the individual policy settings and I know Evan, you've obviously been following it very closely, but the one observation I wanna make, and I think uh, we spoke about this right at the start of the financial, uh, not financial, uh, the, right at the start of the pandemic, Scott, but looking at these figures, we are now a social democratic country. We have changed policy regimes. We have much larger welfare. We have much greater government involvement in labor markets through um, the job keeper um, policy, which looks to be um, extended, albeit in a different form. We have much greater involvement over social policy than ever before in Australian history. We are a social democratic political regime or economic regime with a liberal democratic taxation system. We still have relatively and, and an East, to the rest of the world. And an East German regulatory system. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> but we have relatively low taxes compared to our social democratic um, uh, colleagues around the world. This is a huge problem. You can't have both. You have to pick one. You either have low taxes and low spending or high taxes and high spending. Um, we will solve this problem uh, or we will go bankrupt. That's my that's my hot take. Evan, what is your hot take? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the figures are just eye-watering. Uh, IPA, IPA analysis that was done last night uh, found that we won't pay off all the debt that is owed until the early 2080s. Um, now, I don't plan on being around then, I don't think, but it's, you know, they, they, these are numbers my four-month-old son, uh, that my four-month-old son will have to pay back. It's really, really crazy to think about. And I think um, 
Uh, I think the, the electorate will give the cut the coalition some slack because of the coronavirus. But um, once there's a particular normality to the virus and we get back to normal economic settings, uh, people are not going to be as forgiving of the coalition for racking up this amount of debt. Um, and I think that is something that will play into the mind of, of Josh Frydenberg and, and Scott Morrison as we go forward. Um, there's a bit of something for, for everyone here. Um, there's the, the job maker credit. That's a subsidy for young workers who are on job seeker. Uh, so I think it's $200 for 16 to 30s, uh, $100 for 30 to 35 uh, in age group. Um, but what that is effectively doing, I think, is is wagering against our clunky and unworkable industrial relations system. It's so hard to mm. employ young people in this country that the government has effectively subsidised against its own poor regulation in that area. Now, that's a terrific point, Evan. This is it's it's just demand side. So we're now in a country where uh, you have a choice of two Keynesian parties. Um, because, you know, for Keynes, uh, you know, direct government spending of infrastructure and a, and, a, and a tax cut were sort of alternatives and you could model them um, uh, and, and that's what we're in. You know, if you vote Labor, then you get school halls and pink bats and shovel-ready projects. Um, uh, if you vote coalition, you get tax cuts and shovel-ready projects. It's, it's just a, a minor difference about, you know, and, and you talk about putting spending power into the economy and, you know, the, the Galar in the corner pet shop talks about, oh, well, you know, this will put spending power into the economy. Um, meanwhile, Scott Pape, the barefoot investor, says, if you get any tax cuts, save them, don't spend it. So go figure. But, yeah, uh, completely forgotten about the supply side, actually fixing the things that you're talking about. It's about papering over the cracks. Uh, we're supposedly going to adapt to this post-COVID future, but there is nothing in this in this budget or this direction or in the government's rhetoric which actually talks about making Australia more adaptable. Um, to Chris's original point about these um, <laughs> our social democratic cousins, God, has it really come to that, Chris? Uh, in Scandinavia, um, they work on the basis that you need a healthy private sector to fund fund their welfare states. And they actually have a pretty deregulated system. You know, in countries like Denmark, you know, the private sector can get on with the job of creating wealth. They know they're going to be taxed, but that's the deal. Here we have the worst of both worlds. Well, that's right. And, and so much of this budget, I was reflecting this morning, actually, having watched it last night, so much of this budget is, it's a crisis budget. So it's a mid-crisis budget. It, um, it doesn't spell out a future reform agenda, it doesn't really spell out a way for us to get past that massive debt. Um, in fact, what you would hope is that next year we will get a budget that starts to spell out a way forward for the country rather than just emergency crisis spending. So that's that's the argument in favour of Josh Frydenberg's budget, that it is a crisis budget and we shouldn't be asking for anything more than what a crisis budget looks like. Um, but kicking the can down the road doesn't mean that the can has disappeared. And I think it's incumbent on us to talk about what are those policy settings that are going to not just get the economy, you know, keep the economy afloat, but what are the policy settings that are going to get us back to the prosperity of 2019? It's how we've always been talking about this. 
crisis. We've just got to get back to as rich as we were in December 2019. Um, uh, that, that has to be the goal. And there's nothing in this budget that will get us there. Nothing at all. Um, um, it, it is, sorry, go on, Adam. Uh, one thing that I am more optimistic about is that um, governments and sort of tre treasury boffins and wonks have for so long uh, relied on one particular P to, uh, to grow the economy, that being population, um, with that being completely wiped off the budget bottom line, um, they're going to be forced and policymakers are going to be forced to propose reforms that affect the other P, which is productivity. Um, so that really takes us back to first principles um, and uh, gives us a chance to put forward ideas that actually grow the economy. Um, that being, you know, lower taxes, flattening the tax system, cutting red tape, and reforming industrial relations. Because that that you, is a you remarkably you really can't tax way to prosperity. That is a remarkably optimistic approach. That is a really uh, <laughs> glass half full. <laughs> well, so, I, well, I'm, I'm going to so so like economic growth, genuine economic growth, comes from population growth as well. And so, what unfortunately yeah. has happened during this crisis is we've taken one tool to boost the economy, to boost living standards off the table. And now we're hoping that the government is going to suddenly look at the other tools, productivity, um, uh, tax cuts, regulation, um, uh, cutting regulation, and, and hope that that will make up the difference. Now, everything I know about the Australian government is that they have been desperate for things that will boost productivity without doing political damage to themselves. Um, now, I'm, I, I, I'm always very, very critical of their approach here, but um, everything that we hear from them is that they, they're just desperate for new ideas and productivity. The idea that suddenly they're just going to be really good at it now, I, I, just, I just don't see it. Now, I, this, I, I wish I could. <laughs> no, it, it's got to be a broader social movement. But to stick with Evan's optimistic theme, at least they didn't rule it out um, or, or come up with uh, anything which is going to block it. Um, one of the things that struck me when I looked at those forward projections for ten years worth of uh, of debt, which uh, you know get us you know well north of a of a trillion dollars, say it quickly, and it's you know not so scary. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> billion here, billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Um, is that normally the response of a of a treasurer in that situation, and even a Josh Frydenberg is is to come up with some kind of a, a forward-looking story about, oh, yes, the projections for debt, you know, 10 years out, it'll just, it's just going to keep going up. Um, and you, you then tell some story about your long-term plan to, you know, get us back into the black and, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, Frydenberg hasn't even bothered with that. He's taken your, as you say, crisis budget approach, Chris, and just run with that. And he's left the narrative open and it's a sign of the times that he could do that, that no one's going to say, oh my God, are you happy with sort of 55% uh, of GDP in debt just, you know, to fund JobKeeper and JobMaker and, you know, JobWanker and whatever else they've, they've come up with lately. Um, so the most opti optimistic thing you could say is there is still scope for organisations like the Institute of Public Affairs <laughs> to say these are the things that you must do if you want the productive capacity of the economy to grow and the tax base to grow so that one day we can actually uh, get back into the black and start once again to reduce that pile of debt. 
it's just it just becomes more critical that we're spelling those arguments out now um because we can't have another budget that is just a crisis budget we cannot have a situation where they tinker on the edges of job keeper or job seeker or job maker or job whatever um we we just cannot have a situation that we are as i say we cannot be static at the level of a social democratic economic system with a liberal democratic um taxation regime we just can't have both of them now obviously my strong preference is that that we reduce taxes and we reduce the size of government but surely any side of politics must agree that that is unsustainable on the face of it um now i just think it would be incredibly reckless to increase taxes because that would be in, that would that would be cutting off our nose to spite our face would we be reducing economic growth we would be reducing productivity but we've got to do one of those two things right evan do you think yeah that- and they haven't said they are going to cut they haven't said they're going to raise taxes the whole you know part of the speech was that they're not going to raise taxes in the middle of a pandemic um i think you know in terms of some of the good things in this budget that go to that i think the investment allowance they've announced I think 10 billion dollars or something along those lines is good it's a roundabout way of doing company tax cuts it'll lead to a lower uh company tax bill for many companies as well as the the instant asset write-off um the massive expansion of that's something the ipa actually called for at the start of this pandemic so that's a a very good thing um and and you know will obviously allow uh small businesses and big businesses alike to be able to uh flourish and and, and lower their their tax take and spending um i think that's a good thing um but the, you know the challenge the challenge going forward is going to be whether they can get this spending under control the the politics of it is they've they've come out and they've said we're not going to bake in spending like we did during the gfc we've still got you know, baked in spending from the GFC that hasn't been able to be repealed through the Senate that is still going on uh, from the GFC. So all of all of the stuff they've said, the, their line is that it's proportionate and scalable. Um, and so to the challenge will be here for Scott Morrison and Breidenberg to be able to turn off the tap. Um, now, it's a lot easier to say you're going to do that to actually do it themselves. Uh, we know that from history. Yeah, and, and you're right there to, to highlight the, um, uh, the tax cuts which are targeted at business, which um, uh, it is at least getting towards the productive sector of the economy where wealth is actually created. So we'll, we will actually treat that as a, as a positive outcome, out of, as I say, out of the range of uh, ways that you can provide that fabled Keynesian boost to the economy that is one way that might actually deliver some returns. If that unlocks some investment, which is at historically low levels, as IPA research has shown, actually unlocks some investment, which sets companies up for growth in the future and sets Australia up for growth in the future, then it's a good thing. That's right. Thank you for that analysis uh, of the budget, Evan and Chris. Um, You are listening to Looking Forward, which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. You'll also find information on our other great podcasts like Viral Banter, uh, the Young IPA podcast, or Gideon Rosner's uh, 
put new podcast, which I think they're now calling Tai Tai Wu, uh, the IPA with you. Um, uh, that's an absolute ripper, covering uh, particularly topical issues relating to coronavirus in the uh, at a deeper level than we've discussed today. Um, and if you're listening to this on a podcast platform, this is your chance to give us a five star review. If you don't want to give us a five star review, well, just forget what I just said. But we have come to that part of the show where we talk uh, books, culture movies, whatever people have been reading, watching and listening to. Um, Chris, would you like to take it away? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm doing listening to this time, Scott. Um, so I actually recently, for a long time, I had the Google Play music service um, and it's been trying to, it, it, Google Play is being, is being shut down or the music service and it's trying to push you on, push everybody onto YouTube music, which is awful. So um, I moved over to Spotify finally. And one of the cool things about Spotify is that you can search by label. Um, you don't. You, you can you can search by um, the producer of the music or the, the label that um, publishes the music. So I've been listening to a label quite a lot actually uh, called Cryo Chamber. Um, Cryo Chamber does dark ambient music. Many of our listeners, if they go and listen to this music, might justifiably say that's not music at all. That's just sound. That's just, you are listening to wind. You are listening to an hour of wind. And they wouldn't be completely wrong <laughs> to say that, but it's also really great background music if you're writing. I, I, I've said in the past on this podcast that most of what I do when I'm writing is try to find some atmospheric music that um, allows you to, A, concentrate on what you're writing, but makes the act of writing, which is incredibly boring, slightly more dramatic um and this really fits the bill to give you and i'm not going to play any because the track so, I so, so it's just like a, a, a tip minutes. a tip for any young researchers any aspiring academics out there if you want to get your publication records up up to the stratospheric levels of uh, dr berg of rmit university this is how you do it <laughs> so so the track i've been or, so for example they've they've done a series of seven um, seven books is it chris Seven books. <laughs> They've done a series of collaborative works um, on based on uh, inspired by the the works of H.P. Lovecraft. So um, uh, one album that I'm listening to is called Cthulhu, um, and it's just dark ambient sound. But I really enjoy it. I really recommend you're into it if you are just wanting to listen to some very odd noise. <laughs> so there we ask. There's a good. There's no political point there. There's no political point there. It's just the thing I do. Yeah, no, no. It's a it's a wide open world out there. Well, there's um, <laughs> and somebody out there amongst our thousands of listeners will be interested in that. There, there'll be one person that'll go like, "Thank you so much, finally uh, for sharing this." Yeah, I actually have a book, Chris. Uh, once again, oh. um, and uh, as you know, Chris. Now you're just showing off. As you as you know, Chris. Um, uh, my interest in Western civilization and its culture is not matched by my in-depth knowledge of it. Um, I, I was, unlike Boris Johnson, I didn't get to do a classics degree, um, can't speak ancient Greek and, you know, and have a day job. So you try and pick these things up as you go along. For years, um, I've had this uh, copy of the, um, uh, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, the Oresteia by Aeschylus. Uh, which is uh, a series of three plays, about two and a half thousand old years old, first performed in Athens. Uh, in fact, my aspirations are such that 
I one day found a copy in a bookshop and thought, yes, yes, I really must read that. It's the only surviving trilogy of plays to come from that era. Um, it, it is an acknowledged classic uh, tragedy. I really must read it. I took it home and realised that I already had a copy uh, from the <laughs> last time that I'd had that thought. Anyway, this time around, I, I snuck up on it. Um, I read the third one first. I've had about five goes at reading it. So anyway, this I snuck up on. This is how you read classics. You sneak up on them. You um, read them backwards. So I read the final one, which is called The Humanities. And um, the story of the plays is important because it's a tale of revenge and, count, uh, and, uh, and matricide and patricide. Um, uh, Agamemnon returns from the Trojan War after 10 years of of laying siege, they achieve victory in the famous war described by Homer, only to be murdered by his wife in the bath with an axe. This happens in the um, in the first play, uh, and this is because she has been pl- waiting on her revenge all these years before because Agamemnon had decided that to be sure of victory, he needed to sacrifice his own daughter. Uh, long before George Martin wrote that into Stannis Baratheon's storyline in Game of Thrones, it was <laughs> in Aeschylus's, um, uh play. Uh, so he, he kills the daughter, his wife kills him, and then the son turns up and kills his mother. Um, hurrah! <laughs> you know. And then the Furies, these um, uh, trio of sort of ancient Greek beings, not quite gods, but of, of that ilk, are then pursuing Orestes um, to take their revenge on him. And in the final work, and this is, the, this is what I realised is so important about it, um, the cycle of revenge is broken by Athena. Um, the, the, she actually calls for a trial with a jury of Orestes. And um, he's actually, uh, the jury is tied and on her casting vote, he is allowed to go free. And this is said, the story arc is meant to be emblematic of ancient Greek culture's emergence from a tribal culture of, of revenge and, uh, and vendetta and, uh, to one where, with the rule of law. And, and um, uh, so it's, it's a, it is a very important story. I'm glad that I'm, I'm finally cracking it after sort of 10 years of it yelling at me from the bookshop, uh, bookshelf. Um, I was put onto it by Emily Wilson. Uh, I have previously spoken on the podcast about her translation of the Iliad. She's a great classicist. And uh, she's got a story in the London Review of Books about how all of the translations and the interpretations of this series are dreadful because they're all written by men um, who make um, uh, Clitmanestra, the murderer of Agamemnon, out to be um, uniquely bad and the Furies are awful and all, all the feminine, all the women and the feminine energies in the book are, are what need to be suppressed by the uh, Athenian patriarchy. So there's a, all sorts of contemporary issues bound up in there. So um, uh, not... And by the way, it only took me about an hour and a half to read, so it wasn't that scary. Um, it's not War and Peace. If you <laughs> no, have the... just showing off. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually like it's a play. It's not that hard. Plays, plays can be easier than big fat books, you know. So you get you get bragging rights without having to put in the hard yards. So um, anyway, so that that's my book, The Humanities by Aeschylus. It's only two and a half thousand dollars, uh, two and a half thousand years old in all good bookshops now. Evan. 
Cool. Uh, my uh, culture pick is a uh, show or a miniseries uh, called The Comey Rule. Uh, it's a two-part miniseries based on the book A Higher Loyalty uh, by former FBI director James Comey. Um, now, there's a lot to this uh, two-part miniseries. It's very interesting. Um, uh, it stars uh, Brendan Gleeson as Donald Trump uh, and Jeff Daniels as James Comey. Uh, the first episode basically is is a, a giant prequel. It's all, everything leading up to uh, Trump becoming president. It's the Hillary email stuff. So you don't actually see Trump, uh, the portrayal of Trump, until the second uh, episode. It's like uh, it's you know wait just you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, one thing I would say is that there are way too much monologues uh, from the Jim Comey character about ethical leadership and integrity uh it's very sort of self-congratulating he's um, one of everything i haven't read his book but he on twitter at least he is so sanctimonious in a uh just just in the, the most extraordinarily annoying way <laughs> yeah you can tell he very much has tickets on himself um, he very much thinks a lot of himself um it uh, i cannot quite support Brendan Gleeson's portrayal of Trump. I think anyone that portrays Trump in future movies and shows uh, is going to have a very difficult time because all of it, every portrayal comes off as satirical, regardless of whether it is or not. Um, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's just very weird to watch it. Um, the whole thing is very anti-Trump. It, uh, you know, it's, as it's based on the book, it doesn't take into account anything which the the trump side claim about the whole thing um it doesn't you know even try to attempt does, a portrayal of of the way republicans and the trump side does it um, gloss over the, does it gloss over the fact that you know in a different universe um uh, i mean it suits the democrats to say that you know comey's a good guy and trump was a bad guy but of course comey um uh, completely stuffed hillary clinton's campaign yeah, when, when the, he when the, he reopened the, the investigation, the entire twenty sixteen election, like he could, yeah, uh, it, what it, he did could, it, it basically, okay. it basically you know shows it in a way that he had no choice but to release it because uh. he found the new emails on a different laptop. So you know he would have been a cast as partisan if he hadn't done it. But then somehow they were able to go through three hundred thousand emails in the space of three days and 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 relinquish Hillary from any blame. But, um, you know, it later came out that they only went through about a quarter of that uh, uh, before they said it was all good. Of course, that doesn't uh, get shown in the, in, the, uh, in the miniseries. But I do love a political drama. And if you do love political dramas and can get through the fact that it's, it's quite biased, you know, there is something about political dramas that are, it, it has mm. a, a good quality to it, especially for quite a high quality production where they've obviously spent a lot on it. So Showtime production and then... Uh, Available on Stan in Australia. Is is Alexander Downer in it? Yes, he is, and it's it's quite a funny it's quite a funny portrayal. Uh, it's clearly an American doing an Australian accent. Um, and, well, that's uh, always a huge. It's, it's exactly how you would expect. <laughs> it goes about as well as you might have expected. <laughs> uh, very good. We'll add that to the the, the pile of um, streaming service quickies uh, that have been rushed out before the election just to push any any middle ground voters screaming over the edge into the arms of the Democrats. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I think we could have, like, how many undecided voters are going, like, well, if the miniseries said he's bad, then, <laughs> yes, that's right. fi- then finally I've come to a conclusion. Uh, and I might invent, invite listener nominations to, you know, email with me with who you think should should play Trump in future. You know when, when you know when they make the Trump movie in about ten years' time, who who actually should play him? If if Brendan Gleeson blew it up, <laughs> a real real. But they were never, they were Robert, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson can do anything. <laughs> they were never very good about portraying George W. Bush either, because because you know they all lent into that Hicksville type, um, the Texan Hicksville style. It, it is it just must be really hard to portray someone. Who is significantly more dominant than the portrayal you're going to give it? Who, who, right? who did Nixon in Oliver Stone's movie? Um, oh, I can't remember that one. Um, yes, yes, it's, it's a whole genre. Coming up on a future episode of Looking Forward, we'll look at portrayals of US presidents in the past. Um, yeah. But Barack Obama's in this one too, isn't he, Evan? A very young looking actor yeah. playing Barack Obama. Yeah, but- very, yeah, very young. Looking, I can't, I can't remember the name from. Yeah, yeah, they gave the work experience he's, he's student short, to go. He's shorter and a lot thinner than, than Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's right. very funny. Yeah, no, good one. Thank you, Evan uh, Mulholland, for joining. Looking forward today. Uh, thank you, Chris Berg, as always, my co-host on this podcast. Thank you to Josh in the control room. And thank you to you, the listener or viewer, for staying with us. Uh, You've been listening to Looking Forward, a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. We'll be back with more next week.